looking today at just a few verses, verses 18 to 21. It's a tiny passage containing two parables. And as we look at it, you will see, I think, in many ways, that this is the conclusion of the passage that we saw last week, where Jesus was healing a woman on the Sabbath, and again, as usual, ran into some opposition in the synagogue. So we're going to read uh, what Jesus says in response, beginning in verse 18, reading to verse 21. That's on page 873 of most ESVs, if that's what you've got. And as you're turning there, let me uh, say one word of, uh, of future planning. Uh, probably two weeks ago, you heard me confidently say that we were going to press on to the end of Luke chapter 13. Now I need to step that back. Uh, it seems uh, that, uh, that with next week, with us gathering in person, uh, it's a good time uh, to take a change for the summer in our direction. And actually, this is a good place in Luke to take a break. Uh, you'll see, uh, if you look at verse 22, it begins a new scene, really. Jesus uh, marching, beginning again to go toward Jerusalem. This is the second mention since chapter 9 of Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. And so this really is a, a new section of this portion of, of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 22. So we're going to stop... Uh, Lord willing, uh, today at verse 21, and next week for the rest of the summer, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be preaching through the Psalms of Ascent. That is Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. We won't get all of them. We're going to, we're going to have to clip three of them uh, to fit them into our summertime, uh, but that's what we're going to be doing, and Lord willing, come in the fall, we will return to Luke chapter 13 and pick up verse 22. And so today will be our last sermon uh, in Luke's gospel for some time as we, uh, we take a step back to look at the Psalms of Ascent for the summer. But now, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We're going to read verses 18 to 21. And before we do that, we're going to turn to the Lord in prayer and ask that he may add his blessing as we read his word this morning. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for these parables. We thank you for your word that even when it is small, even when it shows up in a tiny way, yet you put it into the hearts of your people and you grow it in your people so that you would grow your people themselves. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word as we hear it today so that we would be better fitted to glorify you. We pray that you would do this for your great name's sake, we ask. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Two years ago, Kaylee Wilkes received the gift of a potted plant. It was a succulent. It was one of those little cactus-looking things with the fat, pointy leaves. And as those succulents typically come, it came in its own decorative vase, and it had gravel on top of the soil and, and drainage holes down at the bottom. And actually, that's, that's key if you've got a succulent, because most of them can't handle too much water. 
That's why uh, back in February, Kaylee posted on Facebook about how uh, defensive she said, how defensive she got if anyone else tried to water her plant. She was doing the best she could to, to tend for this little plant in her home. And so she would put it in the sunniest window and, and rotate it. Uh, ever so slightly as the season passed, she would, she would water the soil, not the plant, she would water the soil ever so slightly, and she even took the time to wipe the dust off of its little spongy leaves. Finally, Kaylee decided that her uh, house plant needed some breathing room, and so she chose a bigger vase, uh, she prepared for the relocation, and she expected that when she unpotted the plant, she would find a tiny ball of roots, compacted and, and healthy and thriving. And what she found instead was a block of styrofoam. It was at that precise point that Kaylee realized she had been gifted a plastic plant. How did I not know this, she writes. I feel like the last two years have been a lie. Now, uh, before you judge Kaylee too harshly, uh, consider the fact that in the best case, some succulents hardly ever grow at all. Uh, summer, summer turns into winter and the seasons pass and, and the best sign of life you get from some succulents is that they simply look the same as they always have. If there is any houseplant that could pass for plastic, succulents top the list. And so there are certain things you, you understand that you simply shouldn't expect to grow very much at all. That's not the way it is with the kingdom of God. God's reign in the world is a matter of growth. Sometimes that growth is startling and, and sometimes that growth is slow, but Jesus wants God's people to know that his rule is never stagnant. God's kingdom is not some plastic placeholder for where life ought to be. God's kingdom is a matter of flourishing. It's a matter of fruitfulness. And where God is at work, he will grow his kingdom. He'll move it from tiny to triumphant. He'll move it from obscure to glorious. But God will grow his kingdom. We come today in Luke's gospel to two of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught, and they're really pretty easy to understand. God's kingdom is living. It's growing. It's organic. It's like a mustard seed, says Jesus, planted in the ground and putting down roots, and in a single season it grows from a grain of sand to a tree, 12 feet tall, and it stretches and towers over everything else in a Jewish garden. God's kingdom, says Jesus, is like sourdough starter. It's small by comparison, but it is lovingly, painstakingly kneaded into flour, into dough, three measures of flour, says Jesus. That's a lot. That's about 50 pounds of flour. And by the time you're done putting the sourdough into that much flour, you would hardly even know that it's there. If you've done your job correctly, it all mushes together into one big lump and it all looks the same. But then the yeast gets to work and the dough starts to rise. That's what God's kingdom is like. There is transformation between the start and the finish. There is a, a penetrating, a pervasive, unstoppable growth wherever God's word is received. Wherever his 
Son is trusted. Everywhere that God's grace moves and shapes human society, God's kingdom is a matter of growth. It's growth that you probably wouldn't expect if you were simply to look at the seed in the palm of your hand. It's growth that cannot be stopped once it has been set in motion. It's growth that shelters nations and fills the earth. It's growth that works by the unseen filling of God's Holy Spirit. So these parables are easy to understand, but they are also Jesus' response, his answer to the skeptics who always seem to find something about his ministry uh, to complain about. Last week, we saw Jesus manifesting the power of God in a synagogue. Satan's capacity to cripple God's children was coming to an end. And there were leaders there who were too busy protecting God's law with their own traditions to receive the kingdom power that Jesus was proclaiming and manifesting among them. Verse 17 that we read last week, that summarizes the outcome, not just here in the synagogue, but anytime human religion clashes with God's Redeemer. Verse 17, as Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. But then verse 18, our passage, gives us Jesus' response. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now that therefore means that these parables pack a punch. God's kingdom is Jesus' answer to those who think that they can define when and where and how God's mercy is allowed to show up in the world. It's also Jesus' assurance to the people who are in his kingdom and the ones who are rejoicing that those works that God begins in the lives of his people, he will surely carry to completion at the final day. And so Jesus has come to sow the seeds of God's reign on earth. He's come to knead God's spirit into the lives of his people. And wherever God is working, he will grow his kingdom. And that means there are a few truths, two truths about the kingdom that we always need to keep in mind. First, we need to remember that often God's kingdom starts so small that it's easy to dismiss. And if you need proof of that, you only have to consider the way that Jesus was received when he came into the world. He came quietly. He came humbly. He came into a backwater corner in the vast Roman Empire. He was born to a peasant family, many generations removed from all the pomp of David's kingdom. Jesus grew up in obscurity. Except for that one little mention, when he was 12, his entire childhood is a mystery to us. And when he came out of the waters of baptism, when he came out of the wilderness temptation, he came proclaiming a new beginning. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. And he began to call fishermen to gather sinners. And as he did that, even his own disciples wondered if anything good could come from Nazareth. We love to read the accounts of, of his miracles, his teaching. We love the way that Jesus' words were full of authority, the way his hands stretched to rise and heal and save. But as we saw in the previous passage, often Jesus was received as an aggravator at best. Somebody who cut against the grain of religious 
sensibility, somebody who upset the status quo. And so many people saw Jesus as a a throwaway, somebody to be ignored if he could and silenced if he needed to be. He was a stone the builders rejected. He came into his own and his own people didn't receive him. You remember the fable, the fairy story about Jack and that beanstalk that reached up into the clouds. And you remember the way that Jack came home so overjoyed by these magic beans that cost the family cow and his mother, disgusted, tossed the beans out the window. Well, that's the idea in verse 19. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and literally, it says, threw into his garden. Yeah, that's the way that they planted things back then. They would scatter seed by the sackful over the fields, uh, but this isn't a sackful. (laughs) And it is not lovingly planted and tended in its own little mound, in its own little row, 12 inches from everything else, with all the weeds gathered around to make sure that it wasn't choking. This is a single seed, painfully, proverbially small, and it's tossed out somewhere by the cucumbers, and who knows what's going to become of something so tiny. Frankly, that's the way that many people still think of Jesus. Even if they could believe that the gospel accounts are true, they still see him as so small, so insignificant that he could be dismissed. They say, what are all these these individual Middle Eastern miracles against a world full of pain and oppression and heartache and violence? How could Jesus' healing power all the way back then have anything to do with the family who's dealing with cancer right now? Many people judge God's kingdom the way that they judge God's king, by its humble beginnings. It was the same way that they judged the church. That blue-collar bunch of fishermen, and tax collectors, and, and tent-making Pharisees, and mostly they were men without, without learning or pedigree or, or social status, and on the day of Pentecost they were ridiculed and people thought that they were drunkards. Within a century, they were being put to death for sport. Christianity began as a Jewish reject, you understand, and it grew from there, but what it grew into was the filth between the toes of the Roman Empire. The Christians, they were the scapegoat for every social ill imaginable, and to cast your lot with Christ was to be identified with the slaves and the idiots and the lepers and the outcasts. And so if the apostolic church had a picture in a high school yearbook, the caption beneath that portrait would have read, least likely to succeed. Paul tells us, actually, that's how God intended it. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, the Lord of glory planted his kingdom in a church that was small enough that it could be dismissed. In most places where the kingdom is taking root today, that scenario is playing out all over again. That's why we pray for the church in in Asia and Africa and the Muslim world. That's why we pray for the church in places like Jordan, where it's being recultivated all over again. We pray for God to plant his kingdom in the world so that it might begin to grow. And we pray for that even while we struggle with how small God's kingdom sometimes looks. The same thing is true of Christians too, individuals. I wonder how many of you have 
have families, you have friends that watched your conversion to Christ with suspicion. You declared some new allegiance. You declared that God's kingdom, if they could believe it, God's kingdom had set up an outpost in your life. And they watched and they waited and they gave you time for this whole Jesus thing just to evaporate. They expected it to be like a a tiny pinch of yeast and a whole mountain of flour and eventually would just be absorbed by your life and your struggles and the distractions that we're all engaged in. Maybe, maybe if you're lucky enough to have someone who is especially cynical in your family circle, maybe you've got somebody who still likes to remind you of how little your Christianity seems to have changed you from the person you once were. You've got that person who likes to remind you of the sins you used to share. And they bring up that that hurtful thing you said years ago, or maybe last week. They remind you of how small your sanctification seems to be, and you know that in certain moments they're right. And you're troubled by your apparent lack of a spiritual progress. You're worried by how slowly the Holy Spirit seems to be working in your life. Why does your faith seem to be more like a mustard seed than a mighty oak? Then we have to remember that's where God starts. It's where he began with Christ. It's where he began with his church. And that's the way he works in his people. He starts slowly. He tosses the seed into the soil. He hides his power inside. And God's kingdom often starts so small that it's easy to be dismissed. We need to remember that. That's really only half the equation. The other truth that we need to remember is that in time, God's kingdom grows so glorious that it's impossible to deny. The point of of Jesus' parables was to draw our attention to the difference between the start, the first stages of God's kingdom, and its its final form. That speck of seed that fell to the ground became big enough to shelter sparrows. The yeast tucked away did a silent work until the whole lump doubled. And from start to finish, the, the increase of God's kingdom is unstoppable, and it's undeniable. As is always the case, what is true of God's kingdom is true first of God's king. So when theologians speak of Jesus, quite often they will speak of of his humiliation and his exaltation. They'll talk about the servant's work he came to accomplish. They'll talk about the divine glory that pours from his person simply because of who he is. Now, the dividing line between those two really comes down to one silent Saturday between the crucifixion and the empty tomb. You see, it was always the Father's plan that the Son would be dismissible. It was always the Father's plan that Jesus would come and be overlooked and opposed and tossed aside. It was always God's good pleasure that the Son should be crushed. It was His plan to bury Him in the tomb like a seed so that he could raise him again for the promise of his people. And if you could have seen the difference between Friday and Sunday, if you could have witnessed the change between his humiliation and his exaltation, you wouldn't have believed your eyes any more than those first apostles did. The Old Testament tells us that there was nothing spectacular about Jesus' appearance in the flesh. Isaiah 53 says he had no form, no majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. But of the risen Christ, 
Paul says the Holy Spirit allows believers to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's undeniable, says Paul. And so we no longer think of Jesus as this lowly Savior, despised and rejected. We no longer regard Christ according to the flesh. In the hearts of God's people, the Holy Spirit enables us to see the glory that has always been his. And quite frankly, there's a day coming when everyone will see that glory in an undeniable way. There's a day coming when Christ will return to call his children and the world will see the Lord. And the knees of every scoffer from that synagogue down to today will bow to acknowledge that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, says Revelation 11:15. Even now, Christ's kingdom is growing, and it's growing as his glory waits to be revealed. It's also growing as the church increases. As more and more, God's kingdom on earth resembles that unexpected tree that takes in nations and fills the earth. And that's the idea of, of the parable of the mustard seed. It's like Nebuchadnezzar, who dreamed of his kingdom. Daniel chapter 4 dreamed of his of kingdom like a tree with space for all the birds of the heavens. It's just like Ezekiel chapter 17 foretold. Verse 23, the Lord says, On the mountain height of Israel, Will the Lord plant his tree, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. What's the imagery there? It's a picture of, of, of the spreading boughs of this glorious tree reaching out to shelter souls from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Consider that. Consider that as our country, again, wakes up to our deep-seated divisions over race and class and our ideas of justice. Consider that wherever Christ is received, his people are reorganized into one body, one assembly, one church. And it's not just a Jewish church, and it's not just a white church, and it's not a black church or an Asian church or a rich church or a poor church. It is one kingdom built on the foundation of a single king, one people united in faith, united in repentance, and finding shelter like birds from the storm of our sin. Consider that. Consider that even today, the church continues to spread in places where people are hungry for hope in a way that Americans have forgotten to be hungry. Consider that one day God's kingdom will come in fullness. When our king returns, God's people will be clothed in the garment of his mercy. And on that day, no one will be able to deny that the Lord has been growing and gathering and glorifying his kingdom. Well, then again, just like Christ and just like his church, individual Christians have a share in this growth. And the secret of the leaven is that it grows, it works at a, at a microscopic level. It, it works like an invisible army on the matrix of the dough, and it works to break it down and to fill it up all over again. So long as your yeast is healthy, the result will be growth. That's simply how it happens. 
at the beginning of the pandemic, like everybody else on the internet, I got the sudden urge to bake some homemade bread. I'd done it before. I enjoy it. I, I like it. It's a wonderful pastime. And my problem was that, as you may know, yeast was sold out everywhere. You couldn't find it to save your life. I had one packet at home tucked away in a drawer somewhere, and I took it out and saw that it expired in 2017. And so I needed to know if, if my yeast was even any good. So I made a test piece. I made the, the tiniest little dinner roll lump of French bread dough that you've ever seen. And I put it in a bowl and I set it aside for an hour or two. And I came back and lo and behold, it was plump and good and full of promise. And I knew that the yeast was ready to go. That's the way that it works. So long as the yeast is healthy, the dough will rise. It might not rise very fast. It might not rise very evenly, but the power of the yeast guarantees the growth from the inside out. And that's the way the Lord works in his people. It's true that sometimes we are, we are stymied by how slowly our sanctification happens. We struggle with the same sins over again. We repent of our repentance and we wonder if wretched man that I am, we will ever be redeemed and saved from this body of sin. And yeah, there's a, there's a day coming for us too. The same day when everybody sees God's glory in Christ. The same day when everybody sees the kingdom in his glorious nature. The same day that we will be purified from inward stains. But even while we wait, our growth is happening. It's sure and it's glorious. Not because of what we can do. Not because of of how hard we can work or how well we can need or what we can do to, to serve the Lord. Our, our growth is sure because God has given his spirit to his children. Our growth is assured because he works on us from the inside. He works on us with resurrection power, simultaneously breaking us down and filling us up. And he works slowly sometimes. He works silently, almost always. God works in uncelebrated triumphs over temptation and desire. But if you belong to the king, you can be sure that he's working. You can be sure that he's working because that's what he always does. In his son and in his church, and dear Christian, even in you, we can be assured from what Jesus teaches us that God always grows his kingdom. Why don't you join me as we pray together? Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that the power of growth in our lives comes not from us, but from you. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to work out that which you are working in us with fear and trembling. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do it. We pray that you would call your people to yourself. We pray that in, in the whole world that you have made, you would cause your kingdom to grow silently, spectacularly. We pray that you would cause your kingdom to grow and to draw in the nations. O oh Lord, calm our hearts before you and draw us to see your beauty and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, you redeemed of the Lord, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing, to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever.
Amen.